Welcome to our listeners. This is the Oral History Project for the Academy of Neurologic Physical Therapy. It's February 22nd, 2018 at the Combined Sections meeting, and I have with me here today Dr. Judy Deutsch, and welcome. Thank you for carving out the time. My pleasure. Um, so we'll kind of just go through your background a little bit your, sure. and make sure that I have that correct. You're currently on faculty at Rutgers That's University right. as School of Health Professionals in the Department of Rehab and Movement Science. That's right. And you're the director of the Research in Virtual Environment and Rehab Science Lab. Right, the that's, Rivers Lab. That's a big... Do you like the name? Yeah. Yeah, we like the The Rivers Lab. The Rivers Lab. Okay. That's, we never really refer to it by the full okay. title, but we wanted... We, we, we just like the idea of naming it something... Fun, yeah, yeah, and it it sticks with people. And um, looking over your career, if we go back, you got your bachelor's in human biology at Stanford. That's right. And then your master's in physical therapy at USC. Mm -hmm. Before you went and got your doctorate in um, in pathokinesiology at NYU, what was the time span there? How much did you? So I. So. So I got my bachelor's in human biology, Mm -hmm. and I took a year off and went to work on a kibbutz in Israel. And I picked the kibbutz because the kibbutz had a physical therapist. And I thought, well, maybe I want to go to physical therapy school. And so it'd be good to, you know, be on the kibbutz with this woman who's a physical therapist. When I got there, it turned out that she left the kibbutz every day to go work somewhere else. She didn't actually work on the kibbutz. So I never saw anything about physical therapy. I, you know, I hung banana trees and I picked fruit and I worked in the children's nursery and in the laundry room and in the kitchen, never with the physical therapist. So that's fine. But I applied to PT school from Israel. Okay. And I couldn't find a typewriter that had like English type on it. It had the Hebrew type on it. I finally found one, like an old manual one. And then I couldn't find paper that was eight and a half by 11 because the European paper mm-hmm. is a different length and it was also a different grade. So it was like this brown paper. Okay. And I didn't have correction stuff. So I typed my things and they must have been horrendous. And so I was hoping, waiting. And this was a time when there were only five or six master's programs in the country. Okay. And so I had gone through the list and there was one and I said to my father, you know what? I I'm not applying there. I don't think I want to go there, and I won't say the name of the school. But I and he said okay, and then I was like, and you know what? There's this other one, USC. Like I don't really think I want to be in Southern California because I had been in Northern California. And he goes, I don't think you have the luxury of making your list so short. Mm. And that's where I ended up going because that was the only school that took me. So what happened is that I got waitlisted at USC and at Columbia. And USC accepted me four days before the program started. And I got on a plane because I was at New York at the time. And I had my backpack and my bike. And a second year student met me at the airport, put me up for the night. I went to orientation the next day and I was like, anybody need a roommate? And then I ended up living with five women. I had this room that was like a laundry room. It was a room that was like off the kitchen and it had a door to their garden which had you know, fruit trees because we were in Southern California, a door to the garage and then no door to the kitchen. So the person who rented us house put a door there. And my room was like this room where there was a fold-out ironing board and a cabinet. That was it. 
So I went to a junkyard and I got a desk, like an amazing desk for like 30 bucks. And someone gave me a couch and that was my first year of PT school. Wow. And it was like the start of just a great adventure. And I had a ball. What was your first, like, why did you get interested in physical therapy? What prompted you to try to seek out the opportunity to hang out on the kibbutz possibly with? Well, you know, so I grew up in Mexico City Mm -hmm. and I had originally intended to go to med school. But my parents relocated to the States my senior year in high school. And they said, um, you can stay in Mexico for your senior year because I had been in the same school, but you have to apply to schools in the U.S. So that was Mm. our deal. So I ended up going to school in the States, and I didn't think I wanted to go to med school in the States because in Mexico you can go right out of uh, high school. So you don't oh. have like four years. And, and I was right. like, oh, my God, I'm not going to be in school for forever. So I started exploring other possibilities. And I had worked um, in undergrad at a pool for kids with different abilities. And then somebody turned me on to a, a summer camp for kids with different abilities. And it just awesome. somehow, you know, figured out that. When I went to college, I thought I wanted to do like international healthcare, like more policy stuff. But then I realized I really want to work like with people and do yeah. something. So that's somehow kind of like how I ended up finding PT. Um, so when I came back from the kibbutz, thankfully I got into PT school right away because um, it was at a time where people applied many, many times before mm. they got in. Okay. It was just the way it was. And I ended up having like really like a fabulous couple of years. Um, and I was very lucky because USC had a, a rotation, a PNF affil. So I went to Vallejo for three months as one of my affils. And I was at Rancho. And I mean, I really just, like from being completely ignorant, like I really did not know what I was going to do in PT school. I really did not know. And it just turned out to be. It worked out. Yeah. And I fell in love with neuro. Um, was that because of your time at Rancho? I think or? Rancho helped. So I had a rotation in the brain injury and in the spinal cord injury units, and I definitely knew I wanted more more of the brain injury work and not the SCI work. Um, and then I I think that's what, well. I also just think the I don't know what it was. I think that was a big part of it. And you met and Dr. the Vallejo Perry probably and was well there. and so so we would I was a gate clinic with Dr. Perry, which was just awesome. Um, and I I um. At Vallejo, it was much more, it, it had a heavy neuroemphasis. I mean, it was a mixed caseload, but mm-hmm. I don't know. I like, you know what it was? I think I just liked rehab. I liked the rehab culture, like more time with people, more informal, building relationships. So it wasn't just, you know, come in, it's tight, it's weak, let's fix it. It was very holistic. And that's what's always appealed to mm-hmm. me. I think, I think it's, it's, yeah. that, it's that piece of it that really... What was the gate clinic like with Dr. Perry? Intense. Intense. I remember um, we would have uh, the clinicians, you know, they had that long gate list where they made the checks of the observations and people would like make their comments and you would just be like, oh my goodness, I think I saw one thing and they saw 15 things, you know. So it was definitely a very skilled group of clinicians. I think from there is where... I developed my love for observation of movement and also from Dr. Hislop because Dr. Hislop taught our our neuropathology class and she had all she had all these looped videos observing people's movement mm-hmm. and sort of she had a really great map of 
where are where am I in the nervous system? Like where is the issue in the nervous system? And then we would look at videos and and that I think really like turned me on to movement oh, observation. Yeah. Yeah, and who knew? Like I had no idea um that Doctor Hislop, you know. Yeah. Doctor Hislop, you know. She was awesome. Right. But I just, you know, didn't have the step back big picture, you know. And I had professors that were, you know, leaders in the field and I didn't know that. Yeah. They were just my teachers, you know. And yeah, and you learned from yeah. took and the Mary, opportunity. Mary Beth Brown had just finished her PhD and when she moved to St. Louis, uh, we moved into her house. So we, we okay. in my second year I actually had I picked my roommates and we moved into her house. Um, and Carol Lee was I think she was doing her postdoc at the time. So she wasn't around, but she was around. Okay. You know what I mean? Yeah. And Lucinda Baker was living in her car because she was wow. doing animal work at UCLA and had to stay around for the preparations. Mm -hmm. But then she was coming back to teach us at, you know, at Rancho. So I don't know how she did it. Yeah. But yeah, that was... That was a wild that time. That was a, a very happy therapy. time. You know, it's really sad because I recently was in Southern California and I wanted to show my daughter where I went to PT school and those buildings are condemned. Right. And so I said, well... This is where it was. Yeah. yeah. Um, it's really changed a lot there. And the campus is just, you know, humongous. Mm -hmm. So, but, you know, it's, it's I very happy memories. PT school is a very happy time in my life. And, and I mean, I really liked my undergrad at Stanford, but I loved my yeah. PT school. I mean, it was great. So, so what then, prompted you to get your PhD? Is it because you like to teach or you just had this these questions that you want wanted answers yeah so I so I moved to New York because my family had when they left Mexico they had gone mm -hmm. to the East Coast so I figured it's been eight years yeah. maybe I'll go live near my family um, and I ended up getting a job at Kessler um, again because I kind of liked rehab mm -hmm. and they would rotate you through all the services and I just seemed it seemed like a good fit for me so I lived in New Jersey and to be honest with you I was very frustrated from the get-go that a lot of things that I learned in school just didn't work mm. um, and so um, some of this neurodevelopmental techniques and positions just didn't seem like voodoo to me didn't make sense didn't seem to work um, I, I had done a lot of PNF training and so I understood that like strengthening that you know that has a, that has a role but I think I was just frustrated and I started mm -hmm. to actually explore a lot of alternative and complementary therapies so that's when I learned about Feldenkrais and some of the some other ways to think about movement and rolfing and mm -hmm. so trying to think about posture and movement more globally mm -hmm. and not as reductionistic um, and and I think I I always knew I wanted to teach I actually remember being in PT school and saying oh I'm gonna teach neuro-PT like that's gonna happen and when I actually, when I moved to New Jersey, I did start teaching right away. Okay. I, I UM, UMDMJ recruited me, and I was teaching PNF. I teach six three-hour classes wow. of PNF. Can you believe they had That's... six three-hour classes of PNF? That's crazy. So I, I knew I liked teaching. Um, I, I think I was just curious, and I had a really good opportunity. Um, my job paid for people to go to school. So a lot of people were going to school. So I just went with them. And I was single and I had time. So I was taking credits and 
Um, I went in for advisement because you could only take so many credits as mm -hmm. a special student. And um, Dr. Moffitt, um, okay. who was yeah. in that program, said, oh, you should get a PhD. Not Because I was just going to get a second master's. I'm like, I'll get an advanced master's. Mm -hmm. And she goes, oh, no, you really should get a PhD. And I was like, what? Like, it wasn't at all, like, who am I to get a PhD? Right, like, what right. What is that? So it was really her suggestion. And then and they were funded to have PhD fellows. So they had okay. a grant. So I was actually able to be supported mm -hmm. with a stipend um, and tuition in exchange for working like 20 hours a week and going to okay. school. So it worked out. I it was, was an opportunity. Like, I moved into New York City. Once again, I just took the plunge and it was great. I had a really good time. Um, part of my responsibilities were teaching, but I also had to rotate through different research labs at Rusk. So oh, sort okay. of Rusk rehabilitation, mm -hmm. you know. Um, and when I was there, um, I lived with someone who was in the med school, and she and I went to Honduras and Ecuador to do service work. Um, and I just, um, I was like, I can't believe it. Like, I'm living in New York City. I'm, like, going to school. Someone's paying for it. I'm learning all this stuff. Uh, life is good. Yeah. Life is really good. So I did my PhD in a respiratory physiology lab. Kind of a what weird was it on? thing. It oh. was it was the effect of mental activity on breathing. So I was interested in. I was it was actually kind of came out of Feldenkrais. I was originally mm -hmm. going to do something with um, that was an ad adaptation of Feldenkrais, and it, it kind of evolved like all PhD things do for mm -hmm. different reasons. But basically, I just looked at how engaging in different kinds of mental activity change your temporal and spatial patterns of breathing. And then I did a little bit of work at Bellevue using. Um, some neuroimaging to validate my tasks. Okay. Um, so it was um, it was it was EEG um, because they had they had the resources uh, at Bellevue to do that. Okay. So you know, again, it was like the kind of thing where I just went over to Bellevue and they're like, "Sure, you can do this." Like I didn't have to have money, and, and it was wow. a very different time. It was a very different time. So the there was just seemed like there was a lot of flexibility in terms of what you could do. Yeah. So I was lucky. I was really lucky. Um, I had a really positive experience getting my PhD. And then, you know, the natural evolution of that was to be in, in the academy. And I, I juggled uh, a postdoc and starting work. So I had a couple of postdoc opportunities mm -hmm. and um, ended up going back to UMDMJ where I had been teaching because they were very flexible about letting me actually postdoc and work at the same time. Okay. Which was ridiculous, but I did a postdoc and I started working and I had my first child all in the same year. So that was, yeah. So that's, I just got lucky. Yeah. I just got lucky. You just walked through doors that opened. And yeah. And, and I just sort of said, oh, it would things. be fun to do this. And people would be like, okay, you can do that. Wow. I'm like, thank you. So you, since then you've published like 97 publications, I think it is. Really? Yeah. Oh. That's what I found. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Oh or you're, that you're an author. On yeah, your, yeah. You know. I, well, so I, I, so I think like for me, it's always been about finding um, people to collaborate with mm -hmm. um, and learn from. So I have engaged in different kinds of collaborations based on the work I do. Mm -hmm. um, I, I, you know, in my for my postdoc, I had a chance to be in a sort of a very traditional motor control lab studying the upper limb and I was like that's not for me I'm interested more in mobility and imbalance and I want to study 
those kinds of behaviors. Okay. Um, so now your research and interest is in virtual reality and rehab. And how did you get interested in that? So when I first started doing my research, I was doing a lot of work with motor imagery. Mm-hmm. Um, because as part of my postdoc, I was one of the few people who had a paradigm that worked. So we oh, had a okay. very weak magnet, but I was still able to show plasticity with motor imagery training. Mm-hmm. So I was very interested in that. And I was sort of minding my business and my chair came along one day and said, you know, there's this engineering person that wants to uh, look at the lower extremity in virtual reality and I think that might be of interest to you. And that's how and it just and that's how we, you know, started to work together and it led to, you know, building systems, patenting them, mm-hmm. um, trying to get them out of the lab into the clinic. Um, even though I still have done motor imagery research. I mean, I uh-huh. collaborated with Ruthi Dickstein in Israel, and we published some of the few studies, RCTs, on, on using motor imagery for gait in people with stroke. Oh, okay. So I, I, I still really love that area. I think the bulk of my work has been in, in sort of virtual environments for rehabilitation. How do you think that's going to impact rehab? Um, so it's a really, you know, it's funny because I, I just recently wrote the stroke chapter for um, O'Sullivan and Schmidt because okay. um, they are doing their seventh edition. And I um, I was like, oh, my gosh, our work is in the chapter. And I, I also was like, okay, I we've contributed to the body of knowledge. People actually use some of these things in practice, you know. It's like, so so I think... Um, I think I've always wanted to do applied work and pragmatic work, and I think that it's it's um, some of it is actually useful. Yeah. So it's kind of cool. It, I mean, yes. it's really kind of cool to think that when I went to PT school, none of this would have been in a book, and now it's in the book, and we did some of that. You know, we were part of, you know, the movement of people that contributed to that body of knowledge. I'm like, and I went to this. Did you go to the CPG talk today? Um, I did not. Oh, so no. I went to the CPG talk today, and they're talking. You know, they're talking about interventions for gait mm-hmm. um, and virtual reality and bicycling and all the things we've been doing are are there. Yeah. So I'm like, damn, that's good. It's exciting. We did something that could be useful. You know. So it, it's. I mean, I I think it's been fun to do it, but, but it's, it's even better. It's even there. better that yeah. it could be useful. You know. Yeah. Um, so. Yeah, so I, I think I read last year you guys published a systematic review, I think. Yeah, uh, well, on... well, I'm involved with the Cochrane Review right. for VR. The okay. Stroke and so VR that's... Cochrane Review. Um, and then Sally Westcott and I did a sort of a, a systematic review for four-step to okay. sort of look back at these technologies in across the lifespan. Um, so do you think it's really the implementation of the technology that's making a difference, or is it just... Or is it more going back to um, the virtual reality is another part of the PT program, and so it's just more practice? So, so I think that so so because I have a very strong foundation in motor learning, and I think that that or movement science, and I think that's sort of critical to what we do. Mm-hmm. I think a lot of it is is contextual and it's the interaction of the person with an environment in a meaningful salient task. Okay. So, and then the ability to control the intensity and the specificity of all of that augments it. But I think it's, you know, it's, it's 
practicing at the task level and not just activities. I mean, I'm not walking on a treadmill. Mm -hmm. I'm walking in a virtual environment, right? That's and meaningful. So it's salient to me. Yes. It, you know, so yeah, it, it might engage me, it might motivate me, but it also like it transfers to what I'm really going to do, which mm -hmm. is really walking. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. So I think, I think it's very complicated. I think there's a lot of cognitive and perceptual processes that are informing um, the motor behavior in addition to the motor output. Um, so I think there's a lot that we haven't unpacked mm -hmm. from what it's from what we are why why it's working, uh, but I um, it's sort of I mean I kind of think VR and imagery have a lot of similarities because in imagery you're just right. you are internally generating these environments and you're walking in them and you're thinking about how you feel and you know so it's got some similarities just that one is internally generated and one is sort of provided for you. So in some but ways, but I think that's why those things both appeal to me. Right. So in some ways, looking back on it and kind of reflecting on that, it's almost like you're starting to come full circle where, you know, it started with imagery because we didn't have the technology. But now we have this technology and you're getting to use some of those same things that intrigued you at the beginning. Yep. It's and absolutely true. now just taking it to a whole nother level. Yeah. But it's the theme is still yeah. similar. And it's, and, but in, and it's all like contextual, like what's a meaningful environment mm -hmm. for practice? How do you generate that environment? Because you can't always provide the real environment. So you can imagine the environment, you can generate it synthetically. Um, so yeah, so I think there's a lot of connection. I always tell my chair that. It's all connected, Alma. It's all going to make sense, you know, because she's always telling me I'm doing too many different things. But I think there is some, there is a theme, you know, Absolutely. that carries, carries it through. And now, because we've spent so much time learning about how to develop these technologies, I'm really interested in the technology transfer and in the knowledge translation. So mm -hmm. it's like, how do I, how, do, how, how is it that PTs will use it? What are the barriers for them to use it? And then um, you know, how can we overcome those barriers? So one is how can I design something that's going to be meaningful to the person in practice and to the patient, obviously. The other is if I design something, then how do I support people in practice to mm -hmm. use it? Do you know what I'm saying? Yep. So I'm not like, again, I'm like, I love developing stuff, but I'm really interested in how it ultimately will get used. And that's sort of some of the work that we're going to be, you know, that we're doing now. We're building online resources to make technology available. I have a collaboration with, uh, Roberto Lorenz in Spain and Sergi Bermudez in, um, in Madeira, which is Portugal. Mm -hmm. um, and we have an online site where you can go and get simulations that people have built for free because it's like you build them, you show they work, but you can't use them. So can you go get them? But then I think you also need now, here they are, here's how you use them. Here's mm. some practice with it. So the knowledge translation yep. piece, and that's the stuff that I've been doing with Emily Fox, Danielle Levac, Debbie Espy, and Sujata Prajan, where we built the Connecting with Clinicians online resource. So you could actually, if you want to use the Connect, we we figured out or we've given suggestions for you to how to think about it therapeutically. Okay. You know, because it doesn't always transfer so easily. Um, so, I don't know. So it's, you know, just all kind of works yeah. itself out, you know. I think, I think the KT stuff, like... It was at three step when like Carol Richards was talking about there and I was just like, Oh my god, we have to be you know. So I just you go to meetings, you get inspired, mm. you move yourself a little bit in one direction or another. So now I live in the VR world, VR rehab world and the PT world. Um, um do you think that so you were the neurology 
report. You started out as the neurology report editor in 1998, I think. Yeah. And it went till 2008 um, for the academy. And how, looking at your history with your education, it seems like a, a pretty organic way that you would just sort of fall into that because of your excitement about learning you're you know wanting to find out questions that the i mean at that those beginning stages so how did it happen that you ended up as the editor of the neurology report which now is the journal of neurologic physical yeah. therapy well so so two things happened one there was a when Lisa Riola was the editor mm-hmm. um, at CSM, we had had a, 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 a small session on the curriculum in NeuroPT. Um, I remember that. And I had presented yeah. a paper about our curriculum, and, mm-hmm. and it was peer-reviewed then by Jim Gordon and, and David Brown, and we talked about, and Ashley McCook, and we talked about what, you know, why is it this way or why is it that way? It was just the beginning of a conversation of how do we make the curriculum meaningful um, and, and how do we organize it, you know? So I guest edited the special issue on education from that Congress. So that, okay. so that, so that was like my entree. And the reason, the reason I was so happy is because I had been trying to get on the research committee of the section and they wouldn't take me. I don't know why. I was like, I really, what I wanted was to be on the research committee right? and they wouldn't take me. So I was like, okay, I'm going to do this editing thing. And I liked it. And then I, I think it was maybe Sue Whitney who spoke with me or it was Lisa. I can't remember like, you know, it's like yeah. where the invitation came mm-hmm. from, mm-hmm. but I was like, I was like, Oh my God, that would be so awesome. Mm-hmm. I would love to do that. And I talked to my chair because I was really very early in my career. It kind of, right. in hindsight, was not really the most appropriate thing to do where I was developmentally. Um, but she was very supportive. And um, so so there I was. I was like, I'm going to do it. And I remember I was sitting in the back of the room and I can't remember who was saying and we're going to have the new editor of Neurology Report. And they said my name. And I was sitting behind Andrew Berman and Pam Duncan. And they, they were like talking to each other. And they're like, oh my God, that's a job I would absolutely never do. <laughs> and I was like, okay, well, here I go, you know. But um, so I, so first, so first of all, I was, you know, marginally qualified. Let's be honest. I mean, I'd had one experience as a guest editor. I'd been a peer reviewer for the journal, but it wasn't like, you know, you know, I'd I, written a I few papers, you, you know, I'd written a few papers, but it wasn't like I had been a publication machine or anything like that. Um, but I, I love the idea of creating the issues and having the special issues. And so the, the I went for advice because I was like, I don't know what I'm doing. And I went to the uh, Council for Science Editors. I went to a, their meeting and I learned about what it is to be a journal editor and all the things you need to think about and the relationship with the society and your autonomy and all. I learned a lot of stuff. It was a great meeting. And then Becky, I got advice from Becky Craig. I was like, I got to build an editorial board. You know, I have ideas for, you know, who might be like people. And, and basically I invited people that were all senior to me 
I mean, I, I had no, they had no business reporting to me as the editor. Um, and it wasn't like that. Obviously, I wasn't mm-hmm. like, hey, yeah. it was it was totally collegial. But I, you know, Jim Gordon and Margaret Shankman and Susan Herdman. Um, who else? Kathy Gilbody. Um, oh, I could not remember everybody who was from the original um, board. But all of these people were um, had had expertise in their area. Um, and they were very generous with their time and their advice. And we just together, um, I think, mentored a generation mm-hmm. of people who didn't know how to write. Because we got a lot of crap. Um, and we basically co-authored papers. And, and I don't mean that in any kind of a negative way. I think we just were very um, invested in helping people get their work done yeah. um, and it wasn't like we were being swamped with manuscripts or anything like that so we didn't have a problem you know yeah. but so so a lot of it came from I think mentoring people to be writers yeah. um, and helping then chronicle obviously what was the evolution of our our group into really seasoned investigators and you know we 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 had to we had to overcome like some really parochial things. I mean that I know everybody makes fun of me for the stapled, you know, yeah, because the neurology report, report on your desk was like stapled, a magazine, yeah. and I was like, people, we we will never be like a legitimate, credible journal unless we have a spine. And everybody would make fun of me about yeah. the spine, but I was like, I want it on the bookshelf, and I want you to be able to see the letters. Mm-hmm. And then I was like, and we've got to get rid of this name. Like this name is. What's the report? And where you know? did you get that kind of vision? Was it from that original going to the what the science, the editors in science? Um, I don't know. Did I you think, have like a I mean, vision. I'm sure that it's a synergy of okay. a lot of different things. Um, but I think you know, I looked on my shelf and I saw what I saw, and I was like, because I think at the time the Journal of PT Education was the same, you know, and I was like, well, there's. There's no identity here, you know, and so I felt like we really needed an identity. And so we we kind of went from a mom and pop kind of operation to really moving into having a publisher. And, you know, we designed the cover. The cover is still there. Like this cover is 10 years old and it's still, you know, whatever we we ended up deciding would be a good representation for at least for now is still there. You know, so I think, I mean, I think it was a synergy of like everybody was involved and, you know, but it definitely was my mission yeah. to get it to be like, like credible on mm-hmm. your bookshelf. Um, and people were like, we should have, uh, we should publish five times. And I'm like, no, we're publishing quarterly because we need more volume because we need to fill those pages because like we barely made like the minimum to have a, a spine. I have actually, I'm just going to bring it to you. I'm going to, I have like a blank issue because the publisher sent me, here's what it would look like. So there's okay. no pages in the journal and you just could yeah. see this is what it would look like on your shelf. And then obviously we had to change the name because yeah. it was, I think some of those, some of those drivers came also from our move to get indexed in Medline. So we needed to have, um, a variety of sort of administrative things in mm-hmm. place as well as just the quality of the work right um so 
Yeah. You guys accomplished. A, it was a, I mean, you accomplished a lot it was during a big that deal. ten year period. It was a big deal. I mean, going back and looking at that history and kind of looking at the dates, and I remember those meetings where you announced. I remember how excited you were when you were when you made the announcement that we have a spine. And it was, was it was a big deal. Yeah, yeah. that was a, that yeah. was fantastic. That was monumental. Yeah, and you know, since then, now also the journal has an impact factor, mm-hmm. and you know, it was. Oh, Mark Rogers. Mark Rogers was on the editorial board early on, and he really advocated for the, you know, we have to have an impact factor. And, you know, so I just think, um, I obviously now Eddie's done like a great job mm-hmm. with sort of formalizing and organizing things. You know, I, we, we put a bunch of stuff in place, and then it needed to be kind of consolidated. I don't know if that right. makes sense. We did like a yeah. lot of growth. Yep. And then she consolidated and formalized processes to really strengthen, mm-hmm. you know, the smooth running of the operation. So that um, it's an ongoing. Yeah. To, to make it sustainable, yeah. you know. Um, and that was for sure. Like, I was like, that's not me. I want to build it. Um, it was, and then, it was, and then it was let it great. go. And, and, and then have somebody sort of make sure that, yeah. Living on and living on solidly, and it does. I mean, it's a great, great group of editors, and it's become. I mean, our our vision was for it to be the international neuro journal, not just okay. for the American PT Association. Okay. And so now, IMPA, which is the International Neuro Group, now has it as an official journal. Oh, okay. Um, and there are a couple of other neuro groups. So the Brazilian group also has it as their official journal. So it's uh, that's also sort of starting to. And I, you've you've spoken at the World Confederation of Physical Therapy in regards to the technology piece. Yeah. Um, what do you? How do you think that United States physical therapists are integrating with physios around the world? Can we do a better job? Um, what are we missing? Do you have any opinion about that? Um, yes, I do. <laughs> I think we're a little bit parochial. I think um, we're, we're a little bit protectionistic. Um, so I was involved with PT Now, which was an mm-hmm. uh, association-wide initiative. And I, I always felt that the end goal should be that it should be for the entire global PT community and not just for the American Physical Therapy Association. So I, I just think that... Um, I think there's just different cultures in different countries, um, and um, I've observed the the work that people from other countries do in terms of global PT, and I I aspire for us to be more like that. Mm. Yeah, yeah. So I think, um, and it makes sense. I mean, it's there's some awesome neuro PTs in Australia yes. and the UK and. South Africa and you know in Israel my goodness you yep. know so now that IMPA is trying to bring all those neuro groups together mm-hmm. I think our our group can have a big role in in that that's sort of like that's where I'm at now We're I'm, at I'm vice point. president mm-hmm. of IMPA okay and I'll probably run for president and I really want to see us strengthen our you know have have our our academy be very actively involved mm-hmm. in contributing and I mean we have a lot of cool stuff it's like we did the KT um, program last mm-hmm. last CSM like it would be great to do an international KT program because mm-hmm. there's some very strong KT researchers in obviously in Canada and in the UK and in Australia so why don't we do a global thing and not just a section thing right but you know 
And, and we're at, I think, a real pivotal time where it opens up a lot of opportunities for that global piece. Yeah, and the communication, the technology mm-hmm. for communication is so yep. easy to use and, and affordable. You yeah. Know? So I, I think I think it's an exciting time, and I think the millennial generation is very tuned into mm-hmm. um, to the global yep. uh, community. So I and think there's some exciting. The to take that yeah, there's some very exciting opportunities for us to be. I mean, I think we we have a role, a leadership role in the international neuro community for sure. Um, but it'd be fun to have a global mm-hmm. neuro group that's really, you know, well integrated Connected. with the yeah. with the local organizations. Yep. So. Yep. So, kind of wrapping up here, what advice would you give to the younger Judy Deutsch finishing at Stanford? And looking back, what kind of what kind of advice would you give to her, the one just starting out at the early parts? Yeah, well, you know, it's kind of ironic. I mean, I don't I don't know if the younger Judy Deutsch should have done the journal when she did the journal because it was at the cost of her own research mm. um, agenda. Um, but um, but I don't know that I would change it. You know, yeah. um, I think I I just feel like I've. Like my neuro roots, my neuro family, like all of that's been like so positive and healthy. Mm-hmm. I don't know that I would change it. Does that make any sense? Yeah. No, absolutely. Um, you know. Sometimes things um, happen for a reason. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I think, I think the fact that I just tried stuff and was willing to take a risk and just learn on the go that's all good mm-hmm. I think I should tell my old self to keep doing that more than not to tell my, you know what I mean yeah. my young self not to do you know what I mean yep. I feel like I'm less inclined to do that now and I probably should just keep do that sort of spirit of just like let's try this new thing let's see what happens mm-hmm. yeah. so we're visiting that again yeah and would you is that the same advice you'd pass on to physical therapists entering into the profession now those students that you work with on a regular basis? Well, you know, I, we work with clinical students and we work with students who, want, who are trying to do research training. And I think, I think the advice, you know, the advice is, is in detail different. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think, for me, the advice is just make connections. Mm. Meet people, learn from people, and grow, like, as a member of a larger community than just you I don't know if that makes any sense but I feel like the most satisfying thing that's been for my career is being part of a community like when I was on the neuro board it was like when we were on the editorial Mm -hmm. board it's like your family your community you you're making you can maybe connect with people and make a difference that way Mm -hmm. as opposed to trying to do things on your own that would be my that would be my advice to them because I think that's completely independent of the details of what you do. Right. Do you know what I mean? And there's lots of opportunity for collaboration that way. And, yeah. Uh, and new you learn. ideas and new thoughts and a yeah. Learning. And there's a synergy. You know, mm-hmm. you have your skill set, but people. You know, just so I personally, I just don't like working by myself. I mean, I'm fine. Mm-hmm. I can play by myself, but it's just, you know, the energy comes from interacting with people and learning from them and and growing together. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. And and so lastly, what do you consider to be your most important contribution to the profession right now? I'm sure there will be more, but for right now, because you've 
you've got a long way to go yet. Um, well, it's, that's a really tough question. Mm-hmm. I mean, the fact that I've been a member of a faculty for 25 years and prepared, you know, more than one generation of people to be in practice and be in responsible practice mm-hmm. is huge. You know, preparing 10 PhD students to be independent researchers is huge. So, I mean, I think for me, the, uh, the most satisfying things have been where I've had a mentoring role in building mm. capacity and developing people more so than my individual, this finding was so cool or, you know, I mean, we've built some cool stuff and, uh, and, it, and people are using it yeah. and that's exciting. So I don't know. It's, yeah. So it's, there isn't a single dimension. Seeing... There isn't a single like, oh my God, I did this, whatever. Mm-hmm. I patented this. It's not like that. Yeah. I think it's just. There's a lot of things. It, it's more about um, maybe the relational, a- well. The relational, but the I, relational think, I think the whole aspect the, of mentoring and capacity yeah. building. Because at the end of the day, um, you can only do so much yourself. But if you've been able to motivate or engage or prepare people to do, then that effort is just multiplied, right? So I think for me, the most the most treasured things is the mentoring of my my students. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And and I'll speak for myself. I mean, I, you know, never as a young clinician would have never dreamed that I could have written for the neurology report or the journal. But I remember going to those classes and learning about how you would do that and how you would do a case report or how you would. I mean, I remember when you guys would run those you and chats Kathy. with the editor. Yes. Yeah. yeah. And you know, that was inspiring to me. So even if it didn't take the everyday clinician to actually go and do it, it made them think about it. And it made them think about their writing because that's what I did. It made me think about, well, I can do a, I can do something small. I can't do this really big thing because of my time or right. whatever, or, your training or, or my or whatever. issues, but I can do this really small thing. Yeah. So I think there's probably a lot of people that through your work you've inspired that you have no idea about just because you know you don't know how those words are gonna you put you put it out there yeah. and you don't know how it's going to return yeah i hope that's so true that's that would that would be like that would be great i'd be very happy with that yeah there just doesn't need to be more do you know right. what i mean right. right yeah yeah so well this has been great i thank, thank you. you for your time oh, i hope my pleasure i'm honored to be asked <laughs> Well, it's, I mean, yeah, your name's on, we've got a lot of folks on the list, but I mean, I just in doing, it was just really fun kind of perusing the internet and, and looking at all of the things that you have been able to accomplish. It's like, wow, it's really inspiring and it's exciting. And it's exciting to see that when it's exciting to watch the journey that somebody takes or to kind of have a backseat, you know perspective big big picture perspective on seeing that evolution happen and I really find joy in in watching people's journeys like that it's a lot of fun and so when you say I started out here and then look at all you know that happened in that 10 year span just with the journal yeah that was a lot that was huge it yeah but it was like clearly not me it was well, all of us right it was you know, a, it working was, together yeah. to make it happen you know it was definitely a collaborative effort yeah. So, yeah. I mean, but to see that then happen, yeah. um, that's really exciting. That and I get excited for people. You know, I get excited when Faye Horak presented um, 
her um, uh, her eye. Her oh eye yeah, product. right. Uh, when when she presented that at, to be able to show her progression of work when she was doing basic science and then actually translating it into the clinical setting. Right. I mean that what you're talking about with virtual reality. I just. I think that's just so amazing that you can start with that first question that you right, have and have an and evolution. Have it, yeah. 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 I mean, that must be so incredibly, um, I don't know, satisfying. Yeah. It's, it's, and it's, you know, it's kind of fun and a privilege. Yeah. Um, and, a, and really a blessing. And yeah. I mean, you just, it's, it's like, wow, we got to see it all the way through yeah. to a certain extent. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. so it was fun to research all that you've oh, done well, and, got, and kind of put the thank you. pieces together. Thank you so much. thank you. I appreciate it.